If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, and good morning again to you. Good morning to those in Wilmington who are with us. Now, you're turning to Matthew, but I would like to begin uh, where, a little bit where I left off last week with a story of a man named Nehemiah. So there's a book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah. And the story of Nehemiah uh, is one of an exile. Nehemiah was a Hebrew who was in exile, um, and he served the Persian king. By this point, uh, the, the, the nation that had destroyed Israel which was Babylon, had subsequently been destroyed by Persia. So the Hebrew people who were brought into exile by Babylon now lived beneath the authority of Persia. And Nehemiah served the Persian king. He was the cupbearer to the king, which was a trusted position. And one day an envoy comes to Nehemiah from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah says to him, tell me, tell me about the city of Jerusalem. Tell me all about it. And the envoy says to him, the, the walls of the city lie in ruin, and the gates have been burned. There's nothing but shame. And when Nehemiah hears this, he's filled with grief, and he weeps for many days, and he fasts, and he prays to the Lord. And in his prayer... He cries out to the Lord, Lord, would you remember us? And then he also repents before the Lord for himself and his family and his people for having sinned in such a way that the Lord would send them into exile. And then some time passes, months pass, in fact. And there's a day where the emperor, the king, is in his, on his throne and Nehemiah is attending to the king and the king looks over and sees that Nehemiah looks sad. And the king says, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And Nehemiah says, my lord, uh, how can I rejoice knowing that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins? And the lord softened the king's heart and through a conversation the, Lord, uh, the king makes the decision to allow Nehemiah to return back to Jerusalem with people in order to rebuild the walls and the gates. In fact, he, he sends back with Nehemiah timbers that would be required to rebuild the gates. I might even imagine the king saying something like this, all authority and power has been given to me, therefore go. Go build the kingdom. Go establish the walls of the city of God, that city on a hill. Go and do that. And so Nehemiah went. He went with men and materials and letters of authorization from the king to establish his authority in the land. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he found what he had feared, which was nothing but rubble everywhere. Everything had been just torn down. And he immediately set the people to rebuilding the walls of the city. Well, the surrounding peoples saw this and were greatly alarmed. The Ammonites and the Arab peoples in the region, they were alarmed and frustrated 
that the Hebrew people were coming back to their land and reestablishing themselves. And so they planned to attack them. They planned that one day while they were working on the walls with a trowel in their hands, they would come and assail them and destroy them. But word got to Nehemiah, and when they arrived that day, all the Israelites were armed for battle. And so these people were frustrated. And they were, so they were frustrated and foiled in their plans, but they didn't just leave. What they ended up doing is they just stood a little bit far off from Jerusalem. Kind of like a vulture circling. Waiting for an opportunity. And this is how Nehemiah responds. This is about the fourth chapter of Nehemiah. He split his working men into two groups. One group he assigned to work on the wall, and the other he assigned to guard constantly, day and night. He says, from sunup until the stars were out, they did not let go of their spear. Meanwhile, those who were working worked all day with a trowel in one hand and a sword at their waist. Those who were actually doing the work were armed so that in the case of an emergency, they could drop the trowel and draw the sword. And they didn't have a lot of men. So he stationed people throughout the wall with trumpets. And he said, if you happen to be attacked there, blow your trumpet and we'll, we'll run to where you are to pose a defense. The chapter ends with Nehemiah saying, that whole time I never took my clothes off and I never let go of my sword. He slept with it in his hand. Is that the victory to which we're called? I mean, I really think that picture is a wonderful picture of what it looks like for the exiles of God to build his kingdom. And we're going to come into Matthew and we're going to kind of this abstract idea that we've been talking about now for five or six weeks, this abstract idea of what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not of this world, what it really looks like, the invisible kingdom of God and, and how in some ways uh, the church in America particularly is moving to the margin, is losing influence. And then what does it mean to be Christian in a society that is increasingly disinterested in that? How ought we live? And all of those Somewhat abstract questions. This morning we're gonna we're sort of gonna live right around the cross of Christ. Uh, what I don't want us to do is to leave this subject thinking it's an abstract concept, but rather it's absolutely at the center of Christian life. So let's look in Matthew 16. This is a fairly famous, familiar section of scripture. I'm going to begin in verse 13, and I'll probably read through, through 17. <clears throat> this is what's written. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the, the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, let's pause there for a second. We're not going to spend a long time here. We're on our way to our focus, but I just want to make it clear. Peter testifies not simply to who Jesus is, but to sort of his significance. So what is Jesus? He is the Savior or the Messiah. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. And we, pro- we sort of profess and think about these things with a degree of ease because we're looking back on the story. We know all the answers. But to even the disciples at the time, this was not obvious. This was still mysterious. In fact, the truth be told, Peter did not figure this out. The Lord Christ does not bless Peter because he's smart. He's saying, Peter, you're blessed because God did something in you. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but for my Father did who is in heaven. The Lord put it in Peter who and what Jesus Christ was. Okay, let's continue. This is equally familiar text. I'm just going to read 18 through 20. He continues, Jesus continues to talk to Peter and he says this, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he's the Christ. In the church, there's a good deal of energy spent on what to do with this passage. Peter the Rock, the name Peter, this is where Peter's formally named Peter, which sounds like rock, okay? So Jesus kind of says something like this, and you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the reason there's a lot of attention given here is uh, typically because of conversations about papal authority. So the church has sort of continually come back to the spot, you know, one portion of the church saying this is here that we see the significance of Peter, and another tradition in the church sort of arguing the opposite, Um, So some think, and I'm only telling you this so that we can move on, okay? It's not really my interest today, but you, there might be someone here who has a strong opinion, and I want you to know I know it. Uh, So some people think Jesus is saying, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, okay? And others think that Jesus is doing something like this, you're Peter, now watch my fingers, and on this rock I'll build my church. Or some others say, you know, that, that testimony that Peter makes, you're Christ, the son of the living God, that it's almost like Jesus is saying, you're Peter, and on that I will build my church. I think he's saying, you're Peter, and on Peter I'll build my church. I think, what, what it, I think the plain reading is the best reading. Either way, Peter never, you never find any evidence in the scripture that Peter's proud of this. You, you never find one hint 
in the writings of the apostles as though the apostles are trying to establish their kingdom on earth. So it's Peter himself who one day writes, he writes this to the church. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built. I mean, the rock seems to have a, a very keen understanding of, of who's really doing this. In other words, regardless of who the rock is, this is what is important, is that Jesus says, I will build my church. And that's the, that's the strength of the sentence, is on this rock, I will build my church. Now, two things come out of this that I want us to just note. First of all, it's that it's Jesus building his church. Jesus will make his people great. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and he's going to build his people. The object of the whole sentence is the church. On this rock, I'll build my church. That's the goal. That's the objective. That's the achievement. That's the first thing I want us to appreciate. The second thing I want us to look at is the second half of this sentence, which I think in some versions of the Bible say, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In some versions of the Bible say, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And some Bibles have one of those numbers and they put one of those words and they give you a little note and says, or you can say this. I prefer the word Hades here because we have in our mind notions about hell that are not referred here. Okay, the actual word is Hades which is the place of death. In the Greek notion, when you died, you went to Hades. And it was even in the Hebrew notion. The Hebrew word was Sheol. When you died, you went to this place of death. Okay? And that's a little bit different. It's a little different than the idea of hell, which is an eternal place of punishment. So one day, the Lord, when the Jesus returns again, everyone, everyone who's alive and everyone who's dead will be resurrected and will sit before him in judgment, okay? We will leave that place of death and will sit before him in judgment. And the book of Revelation says, at the end of all that time, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. You see, you see the temporariness of that? The notion of death is temporary. The notion of hell is eternal. So I don't want us to think here that what Jesus is saying is, is I'm going to overturn hell, Hell has, been, hell has in some way been created to vanquish people who do not receive Jesus for eternity. What he's saying here is, I am going to vanquish death. And the gates of death will not prevail. Just think about this for a second. Take this image, just in your mind's eye, I want you to Imagine this. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of death will not prevail against it. Is the church on the offense or on the defense? It's the offense. The gates of death will not prevail. Imagine 
a battering ram of Christ, smashing against the gates of death, and the gates of death will not prevail against the church. That's what's being said here. The church will somehow, some ways, and throughout history, break down the doors of death. And we see this in our own lives, right? We, those of us who are in Christ testify to this, that at least in hope, we testify to the hope that death for us has, been, has no sting. It has been vanquished. It's not real. Though I die, yet will I live. Because I'll go to the place of death, and I'll, when I get there, the gates will be knocked down. And so I will get there, and then I will walk out into resurrection. That's the promise. I have in my mind, it's the old story of Samson. When he goes down to that Philistine town and he grabs the gate, he's angry. It, it, there's not a lot of other similarities in this story, by the way. <laughs> Samson's angry for some pretty rotten reasons. But he's angry and he grabs the gate of this Philistine city, he lifts it out of its moorings and he hauls it up and throws it on a hill. Like this, it's a city with no gate left. Like Jesus is our mighty man who's in, gone down there and has torn open the gate. It's very victorious. And as I've had in my mind this notion of the exiled church or a church in oppression or a church on the defense or a church in the margin or a group of people who can't say exactly what they think the way that... They have to be especially careful so that they don't receive some sort of soft oppression or places in the world where it's strong oppression. It's a little bit awkward to conceive the brandished victory of God in this passage and set it inside of the notion of an exiled church. I mean, even if you don't really buy into the fact that the church in America is being marginalized, somewhere, somewhere you can imagine that there is a Christian church that's being severely persecuted Somewhere, right? I mean, you could have 30 days to pray for some of those somewheres this month. How do we hold on to the victory of God? Even in your own life, right? Where you may feel like you're back on your heels, just things are not working out. The kingdom of God is... You feel out of touch with the victory of the Lord. It's just all you can do to try to hold things together. How do you hold on to that victory? And what does that look like? Has the kingdom, has God failed you sort of because you're in these oppressive moments? Well, let's see. Let's look at the next several verses. So we got to hear what Peter said when the Lord put a word on his heart. This is what Peter says when it's just Peter. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So this is what Jesus does. Jesus tells of his victory, right? You're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of death will not prevail against it. And then he says something. He says, and don't tell anybody. <laughs> this is odd. Okay, let's keep it our secret for now, right? Let's not let the cat out of the bag too early. And then he immediately follows this up with, okay, this grand pronouncement of victory is followed up by this teaching of, but it will not happen the way you think. In fact, I'm going to be turned over to the Pharisees and the scribes. I'm going to be uh, challenged. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And only then will I be resurrected. And it's clear from the apostles, it's, it's clear from the way that Peter reacts that they don't get, they don't see that the brightness of the resurrection of Christ just, just consumes the darkness of that moment. It's, it sounds to them like all bad news. Otherwise, why would Peter come to the Lord and say, far be it, it's never going to happen to you, Lord. We're going to make sure this never happens to you. I mean, clearly, what they hear in it is how is it possible that the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who's going to usher in and vanquish death, how is it possible that he himself is going to die? It's entirely counterintuitive. The way of Christ is entirely counterintuitive. What is going to happen to me now will look like failure. But my the way I walk through this failure now is what's going to give birth to this victory. It's very reminiscent of sort of the exile theology we've been talking about. First Peter last week, right? You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You have, he endows them with all these, the virtues of the identity of the kingdom. And then he recognizes them and says, now to the exiles, to you who are really exiles right now, to these who right now are living in oppression, what do I have to say to you but let your conduct be so honorable that though others would speak evil against you, they would see your good deeds and glorify the Lord on his day of his visitation. There's a sort of right now you don't have it. But we live in the hope that we will have it. Jesus' Jesus's teachings about himself follow the exact same contour. What I find actually most interesting this time that I read it is verse 21 when he says, from that time Jesus began to show. That gives me the sense that so you have this moment where who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. It's a really special moment where Jesus says, wow, that's from the Lord, Peter. You're blessed. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. That's a moment. You don't, he doesn't say that again on the next page. That's a moment. But the, what follows, he does say on the next page, right? From that time on, Jesus began to teach what had to happen. So it's so it's there's this moment, this emphatic moment where they're reminded of the victory of God, but it's followed up by a season of teaching that it will not unfold the way that they would want it to or the way that they would like it to or the way that they would expect it to. But rather, pain and suffering is the way that it will come. And he has to say one of the victory once, but he's got to say the way a bunch of times because they don't get it.
In fact, if we're going to continue in 24 to 28, I think this is a continuation. This is him elaborating on this teaching. Like, he's taking his way, the way of Jesus, and he's saying, he's going to say, my way is going to be your way. Look at 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would lose, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You want to share in the victory of God? You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. I think there is no other way And we should know that the contour of the way of Christ generally matches the contour of the way of his people, which is we will forfeit forfeit now what we will gain later. We will leave behind now things that mattered to us once in order to gain things that matter to us more later. And when the Lord Jesus returns, this time, the decision that the Lord's deciding is not, are you going to go into death, but rather, are you going to go to hell? I mean, the final decision, this is what he means when he says, anyone who wants to hold on to his life is going to lose it. And anyone who will lose their life for my sake will gain it. It's not simply life or death. Actually, when he comes to judge, it's eternal life or eternal vanquishing. That's that's really why there is no way around this. That if we want the way of God, if we want the hope of God, we have to follow in the way of God, which is now in this life, hardship for him, so that we might taste his victory. The path of Jesus is the path for the church. That's what I'm, I'm trying to say. Is The whole concept of exile aside, we simply have to look at the life of Christ to appreciate what should be in, in store for us. I, I think of it this way. There's, uh, we are to live life with something in both hands. We're a trowel and a sword. You know, I, I, go back to, I go back to the story of Nehemiah and those who were kind of literally building the kingdom of God. They were literally doing it. And they, they had their hands full and their life full, and it was constantly being challenged. There was always a threat, right? There is a, for the person who's following after Jesus, they are a threat to this world. And 
if you don't want, if you don't want to worry about the world, you just put down your sword. I mean, all that Israel would have to do to, so that the people would leave, the, the enemies would stop surrounding the city and threatening the city, all they would have to do is stop building the wall of God's city. It's that easy. And I even imagine for myself, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, while he was in exile, while he was a captive, was the cupbearer to the king. You could hardly imagine a, a better role. I mean, he lived in the king's court, ate the king's food, wore the king's clothes, received respect and honor. He was a man of esteem. He probably slept in a nice bed and had a bath. That's Nehemiah. When, it's when he chose when he chose to participate in the establishing of the kingdom of God is when he forfeited all of that and lived for the duration of his time in the same shirt, sleeping on the same ground with his sword in his hand. A trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. I think that's a good picture for the believer. Some of you are thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? I really can't do that much more in my life. Because I'm certainly not saying, now you need to be in a life group. That's not the connection. I'm not even, I, think I, I don't even think I'm saying that you ought to be doing more. I do think we could be doing more with what we're doing. You know, in your workplace, you have a trowel in one hand, but you have a sword in another. Like in your workplace, you're, you're playing a role for the Lord. At your dinner table, you're playing a role for the Lord. I do think every one of us could do more with what we're doing for him. Some of you say, well, I'm, my hands, I have, my hands are full. Well, you may need to put something down. You may need to deny yourself. If your hands are full so that you can't take up your cross, then you need to, need to put it down. You cannot gain this world and gain your soul. You cannot make, or you cannot fill your hands up with the hope to gain this world and and meet Jesus at the end with hope. We're called in our life to follow his, con- the way, his way, to be like him. This is how God would have it to be. And this is really just a great picture of how the exiles of God build his kingdom. So trial in one hand and a sword in the other. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to you in this idea, Lord, I, I'll begin first by lifting up those here this morning, Lord, who don't know, if they don't know who you are, Lord, then they probably don't know what I'm talking about in its fullness. Lord, I lift them up before you. that they would, they would meet you in the kind and gentle way that you met me. But Lord, uh, also in our room, I'm sure are uh, 
those of us who want to have the world and heaven. Lord, and on those grounds, I pray that we would see clearly the decision that has to be made. Lord, and if we could see that, I think then we could live this life without feeling like we're constantly enduring loss by giving things up because we would have in mind what we are ultimately gaining. And we would have in mind that to labor for the kingdom is its own reward. Lord, we close by thanking you that you have broken down the gates of death, that you've broken them open so that we can live in such a way, that we can live with the hope of living again. And we claim that promise through Jesus Christ. We testify, Lord, that he is making us to be his his bride and his church. And it's by his power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.